What's up, nerds? Welcome to another wild episode of Boss Science, a podcast where I talk to wicked smart people and learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the marvelous Grace Ingalls. And in today's episode, I'm going to be talking with PhD candidate David Melisson from the Bertoldi Research Group and learning all about their awesome work combining ancient art techniques with cutting-edge technology to design fantastic new types of structures and materials, as well as building simple but powerful robots that can roll, crawl, jump, and swim in ways you've never even dreamed of before. So, you guys ready for some boss-ass science? Welcome to the show! So have you guys ever been in a situation where you told someone that you'd hang out with them, but then literally disappear off the face of the earth for months at a time, only to show up and hope that you still have friends? Well, here I am. You still want to hang out? For real, though, I know it's been far too long since my last episode, and I want to sincerely apologize, but there's a good reason. Partly because some of the awesome science you're going to hear about in this episode was so new, so hot off the press, that it wasn't even published yet. And I wanted to make sure that I could share every single amazing aspect of the research without restrictions. But mostly because... (sighs) Guys, adulting is so hard. Have you ever job searched before? I have, and it's awful. It's time-consuming, it's tedious, it's soul-crushing, and it takes away what little free time I have to work on the podcast. But luckily, my job search has finally come to an end. Successfully, I might add. And I'm back to spending all my free time on you. The way it should be. So I want to thank you guys for sticking out the wait for me. If you're listening to this, it means you haven't given up hope, and I thank you. I promise, no, I pinky promise that the future of boss science is going to be better than ever. I've got some exciting new things in the works at the moment, all of which are going to help me get more awesome science to my awesome listeners. Speaking of awesome listeners, if you guys want to be one of them, I would love, love, love if you could just take a few seconds whenever you get the chance while you're waiting for the tea to go to class, while your coworkers struggling to figure out how to share their screen in your Zoom meeting, or when you're on the toilet regretting the decision to eat that extra slice of cheesy bread last night. Just take a few seconds to rate and review the show on iTunes. I know, I come across as a boss bitch who don't need no listeners, but actually I really like your feedback. It gives me all sorts of warm and fuzzy feelings when I read your reviews. Like this one. From listener Geek and Chic. Fantastic name, by the way. Every time I listen to a new episode of Boss Science, all I can say over and over again is, that's so cool. I've been involved in the science community in Boston for almost 10 years, and I can't believe there are so many fascinating topics being researched that I've never even heard of. Grace is a joy to listen to. She makes complicated topics easy to understand, and she always cracks me up. 
10 out of 10, would recommend to anyone looking to laugh and to learn about some boss science. Aw, geek and chic, thank you. That's what I'm here for. Okay, okay, I'm done. You guys have waited long enough for some new boss science. Let's give the people what they want. So today's episode, oh my god, I'm so excited for this episode, guys. We're going to be talking to one of the absolutely amazing researchers working in the Bertoldi Research Group at Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. This lab's work is all about creating materials and structures by design, which, as you'll see soon, can mean so many different things. But the two main topics we're going to hear about today are metamaterials and soft robotics. Maybe you've heard of one of those? Maybe both? Maybe not. That's okay. No matter what your background is, I got you. So, before we meet our guests, I'm going to give you a little background on each topic. Let's start with metamaterials, shall we? Now, I come from an engineering background. Not that you'd ever guess that based on my complete lack of knowledge of engineering concepts. But one thing I do know is that engineers love to look at materials. Humans have been studying materials for literally thousands of years, and we've been especially interested in studying a material's mechanical properties. Why? Because in the real world, materials are what give us life. Humans were nothing without our tools, or walls, or phones. So naturally, we wanted to know which material would be best for building a bigger and taller house, a longer and stronger bridge, faster and lighter transport. Once we tested all the available materials to us, like mud and wood and stone, we started to develop new materials, like steel and concrete and aluminum. But for the longest time, the development of these new materials was limited to modifying the material's composition, so only changing what base components the material is made of. However, in recent years, there's been a shift in our thought process, and we've moved towards looking at a new type of materials called mechanical metamaterials. These are artificial materials where the mechanical properties of the material are defined by their structure, not their composition. Sounds crazy, right? But it's actually not a new concept, at least not to Mother Nature. There are so many materials found in nature that have properties that we, as humans, can't reproduce with our measly materials. That's because nature has learned to take advantage of the architecture of a material to enhance its strength. One great example of this is sitting right under your eyes. Literally. It's your bones. Bones are able to withstand the strain from all different types of forces and last up to 60 to 80 years. Any attempts by humans to replace part of our skeleton will last only a quarter of that amount of time, and that's if you're lucky. So what's bone's secret? Well, if you look inside its core, you'll see not a solid block of bone, but a highly complex porous structure with cavities of all different shapes and sizes. These holes create an internal architecture that makes bone super strong without being super heavy. You can add bone to the list of what scientists call cellular solids, which also includes cork, wood, coral, sponge, and honeycomb, all of who have benefits based on their structure rather than only their composition. So if nature is so good at this, why aren't we doing the same thing? Well, we are, 
Humans are slow learners, but we do learn. One example of us learning to use structure to enhance function is the comparison of the Great Pyramid of Giza versus the Eiffel Tower. Both, at one point in time, were the tallest man-made structure in history. And both had the same structural integrity. You know, they ain't going nowhere. But the Eiffel Tower is twice as tall as the pyramid and 600 times as light. How? It's all thanks to the tower's 3D architecture and structural hierarchy. So, using nature as our guide, scientists are now looking at how manipulating structure can change a material's behavior. And you're going to hear all about some wild metamaterials in today's episode. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit, pun not intended, and let's talk about the field of soft robotics. We've all heard of robotics before. We've got robots in factories, grocery stores, hospitals, probably in our very own bedroom. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a miniature BB-8 robot sitting on my desk. BB-8. You know, he's small, round, orange, white. Ugh. Come on, guys, it's a Star Wars reference. Keep up. Anyway, soft robotics is a subfield of robotics, and it deals with constructing robots using... Well, soft materials, things that are flexible and compliant, kind of like what you'd find in a living organism. Actually, a huge inspiration in the field of soft robotics comes from studying how living things move and adapt to their environment in ways that hard robotics just can't. By building robots with softer, more flexible materials, they're able to more easily mimic human abilities, perform a wide range of complex tasks, and adapt to changes in their surrounding environment. Now, soft robotics hasn't been around very long. In fact, the first scientific journal dedicated to the field was only started in 2014. Can you guess what the journal was called? Soft Robotics. Yeah, well, I guess there's a reason we ended up in science and not in poetry. Since its humble beginnings, the field of soft robotics has gained a lot of traction, and now has had thousands of articles published on the topic. Now, there are a lot of different types of soft robots. There are robotic muscles, so structures that can lift more than a thousand times their own weight. There are climbing robots that can crawl up and down buildings of all sizes. There are even wearable biomimetric robots that can help restore people's motor functions. It's an incredibly diverse field of research, and the applications are literally endless. Okay, wow, I am getting so amped. I can't take it anymore. Enough of the foreplay. I think we're finally ready to meet today's guest. Hi, my name is, is David Manalso, and I'm from uh, Montreal, Canada. And for the last four years now, I've been a, a PhD student in the Bertoldi Group, working in applied maths and engineering-related projects. Now, David is the real deal, guys. He knows so much about so many projects that have been done in the Bertoldi lab, even the projects that he's never actually worked on. It probably helps that he was already killing it in the engineering field before he even got here. As he received not only a Bachelor's of Engineering from University of Montreal in Canada, but also a Master's of Engineering from McGill University. I guess not only are Canadians incredibly polite, but they're also wicked smart. How would you say that in French? Il est intelligent en maudit. French people? Is that something you say? I don't know. 
I barely speak English. Let's just stick to one language on the show, shall we? Okay. So for the last four years, David has been working on a whole mess of projects that, again, I hadn't even heard of until we started our interview. So before we get into my questions, let's hear about a couple of David's projects, because they are wild. So the first project that David worked on was an adorable, fun-sized soft robot that he calls the Jumper. And the goal of this project was to try and address one of the many challenges scientists often face in the field of soft robotics. And one of my uh, most recent projects on a soft inflatable jumper. So a lot of uh, soft robotics is sort of limited to the input signal has to be fast if you want a fast soft robot. If you blow a balloon really, really fast, of course, it's going to go fast. In this project, my, my jumper, the idea was... Can we go super slow, right? As slow as one can get and still get a very fast output. And this was achieved uh, simply by sort of harnessing a, an instability. We, we can see in ping pong balls, right? So, you know, when you play ping pong, sometimes it buckles, right? So you, you cannot use the ball anymore because, you know, you have this, this dent in the ball that makes it useless. Well, if instead of, you know, using plastic, you use an elastic material, such as, you know, people use for soft robotics, very uh, flexible, very compliant material, this sort of dent, it can pop back very elastic, you know, without damaging the, the robot. So that was kind of the idea. I am like this little guy. At this point, David pulls out a prototype of his soft jumper, and it immediately brings me back to my childhood because this little robot looks exactly like the toy poppers I used to get for 100 tickets at the arcade. God, is my age showing? So a classic toy popper looks kind of like a small rubber spherical cap, and when you push it inside out and set it upside down on the table, the rubber snaps back to its original shape and launches the toy into the air. I can't tell you how many hours of entertainment that thing brought me. Well, David's soft robot jumper is very reminiscent of the toy popper. I wonder if he played with these as a kid too. The jumper robot is essentially two spherical caps, so two toy poppers, stacked one on top of the other and connected at the base with a small air tube stuck through the top popper. Now, the trick to getting this air-actuated soft jumper to actually jump is thanks to the small cavity between the two poppers and a key difference in the two poppers material. Inside you could kind of have a, the cavity, right? So you can inflate sort of a sort of very small cavity and then everything sort of balloons, right? And then if you imagine the colors representing sort of the stiffness of the material, so pink is very soft, so it balloons a lot. And then this uh, stiff green material at, at a certain threshold, if you will, when you inflate it, it sort of goes to the negative shape. So again, it buckles just like this uh, ping pong ball. And when it does that, it's very, very fast, even if you go slowly inflating. And because it's fast, you can harness that to sort of hit the table and, and, and jump up. Gotcha. So regardless of how fast you blow air into this device, it's going to buckle at the same speed each time. Exactly, because it's airtight, right? So even if you, you know, add molecules in the, in the cavity very, very slow, it has nowhere to go. So it will keep increasing the volume. And at one point, this sort of green cap will, will buckle very, very fast. So that was, that was interesting to decouple the input signal from the, from the output signal. For what seems like such a simple concept, it's actually a huge leap in the world of soft robotics. 
Again, no pun intended. The coolest part about this project, though, is that the approach can be applied to any shape and any size. Can you imagine using a miniature version of this threaded into the body to puncture a vein? Or, say, an enormous version of this that's able to leap over objects across some rocky terrain. It's awesome. Now, the next project David worked on has been years in the making, and when he first talked to me about the research, it was still under review before being published. Luckily, I was able to wait just long enough that the paper passed its final review, and it is now officially published. That means I can talk and show you all of the awesome work without any restrictions, which is great because I want to share every detail of this project with you. Now, the reason this project is so incredibly cool is because it combines the air-actuated technology used for the soft jumper robot with the ancient Japanese art of folding paper, known as origami. Now, I love seeing origami art, like the paper cranes, turtles, Pikachus, all of it. But to use origami for science? That's something I've never heard of before. And this origami-inspired project will blow your mind. Again, pun not intended. God, I promise, guys, my jokes are normally better than this. My first project was, so it's kind of origami that you blow up. So kind of a hard balloon. So this is, this is cool because... Um, a lot of these sort of origami shapes, they are bistable. So you see here, this one has kind of two, two stable states. So stable in the sense that I don't put any force here. If I'm thinking of like inflation, I don't put any pressure, right? At atmospheric pressure, it stays like that. But the idea was, okay, can we sort of design interesting structures with these principles? So structures that would be kind of compact, and then you blow them up, and then they sort of snap into position. And then you can sort of release the valve, and then it stays there. Deployable origami structures? Uh, yes, please. Sign me up. I'd like one of everything, in all colors. So what kind of structures are we talking here? Well, the first design David showed me was for his deployable shelter. Well, he showed me a video of it, because as I soon found out, it's far too large to demonstrate over Zoom. So in this video, which I'll post on the Instagram for you to see, David and a coworker are standing in a Harvard auditorium. Because if you can get a Harvard logo in your video, why wouldn't you? And on the ground, there's what looks like a thin stack of plastic sheets, almost about the size of a large TV box. This stack of plastic happens to be the deployable structure. So the two pick up the origami structure, stand it on its end, plug it into a good old-fashioned air blower, and I watched with my actual jaw dropped as the flat plastic sheets bloom open and turn into an enormous dome-shaped shelter. As soon as the shelter is up, they detach the air blower, open the zip-up door, and walk into the shelter like it's no big deal. What? I need one, like right now. Do you have any idea how easy my camping grips would be if I had one of these things? But apparently, David was imagining this origami deployable structure being used in a slightly less selfish way. So, I mean, you just need a, a big pump <laughs> when you go camping, but okay. Maybe for more <laughs> of a relief 
or disaster yeah. sort of scene. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm like, this would be perfect if you have an emergency situation like we see all across the world happening where people have to leave from where they are and they have nowhere to stay. These would be a very simple, very easy way to provide shelter that can then be taken away without any damage to the environment. That's fantastic. Isn't it, though? How cool is it to have designed something that could potentially help hundreds, even thousands of people across the world? God, science is so awesome. But you know, just because something looks good on paper doesn't mean it'll work in the real world. I wanted to know how feasible this type of structure would be to make and actually use in a real world situation. I guess my question about these would be, I'm thinking more of uh, real world applications. The materials that, that you use for these, is this something that is easy and inexpensive to fabricate? And then is this something that you can deploy multiple times or was it single use and then that's it? Sure. I guess in terms of the materials that we use, so again, everything is to a certain extent uh, material independent because everything is based on geometry. So what we need here the most, I would say, are uh, compliant materials, so material that would stay when you stress them, when you deploy them, that will stay in their elastic regime. And by elastic regime, what I mean is that once they are folded back, uh, they return undamaged to their initial configuration. So ideally, these materials, if you don't go beyond that elastic regime, you can expect that they can be used multiple times without breaking, for sure. In the specific case of the shelter that, that, I, that I showed, we, I guess we were limited in the sense that we needed these very, very large panels, right? Because any type of origami structure is, is sort of fold increases or cutting, uh, you know, these, these hinges. Uh, in, in sort of a flat sheet of material. But if you want something very, very large, you're a little bit limited by that. And so we, we went with these plastic sheets that are actually corrugated to, to increase sort of the, the bending stiffness. So you imagine like two very thin sheets of plastic sandwiched between these ridges uh, that are perpendicular. And that gives a very nice stiffness to the material. And this is what we use because they, they, they came in, in quite a large format, eight feet by four feet, that we can later automatically cut uh, you know, with the pattern that we that we want on them. Um, but it's interesting for the, certainly for the material approach, I guess in our lab, we're always more excited by the idea and, you know, making it, making it work and show the potential of it. But certainly for more translational research, um, I'm also interested in materials that are environmentally um, friendly and that can be reused or, or this is something I'm also very interested in for sure. Yeah, having those environmentally friendly options, super important. I'm very excited that you are also thinking of it too. Yes, it's real, you guys. This isn't just something that works in the lab and that's it. This prototype can actually go the distance. I am on my way. I can go the distance. But you know what's even cooler than one type of origami deployable structure? two types of origami deployable structures. Oh yes, that's right. Not only has David designed an origami shelter, he's also designed an origami archway. And it's just as amazing. David showed me a video of this archway in action, which again, I will post so you can see it too. And just like the video of the deployable shelter, the deployable archway starts off looking like an innocent stack of plastic 
maybe twice as tall as a coffee mug, which is conveniently placed in the video for a size reference. And yes, of course, it's a Harvard coffee mug. If you got it, flaunt it. So the video starts, and as air is pumped into the structure, it slowly starts to unfold, almost like an accordion being pulled open. As the structure expands, the origami folds start to pop out and give the structure its shape, turning this long, flat tube that looks like a sad slinky into a beautiful, arched, and rigid structure. Ugh, amazing. And the best part about this origami archway? The same concept can be applied no matter what the size. So, you want a coffee mug-sized archway? Done. You want a city block-wide archway? Done. Although, you'll probably need a pretty powerful air pump if you want one that big. But guys, the concept is there. So again, I'm wondering, can this deployable archway work in the real world? What types of materials would you need to use so that this archway can expand and pop into its rigid shape, but then also deflate and fold back down into its compact shape? And how do you make sure you can do it over and over again without breaking? Some origami are actually mechanism in the sense that you could deploy them without any deformation, right? It's, it's a mechanism. It's a rigid sort of body movement. But there, the material choice is you do not need compliance because there's no deformation required. In the, the archway, I showed, you know, these different stable states. And there, directly, you know that there's deformation because these two stable states, usually they're sort of separated by a state that is kind of very frustrated geometrically, right? There's like a lot of frustration. It's not compatible. And in that sort of zone, that's very important to sort of account that deformation with a, a softer material, a compliant material that will stay elastic. So the trick that we, that we use in this one is to go with elastic hinges. So the hinges were actually elastic and the, the faces are actually quite rigid. Okay, how did we do elastic hinges? Well, that was kind of, again, trial and error. And what actually worked for the large scale, what we realized is, uh, well, one thing we can play with the thickness of the faces. So if you imagine locally reducing the thickness at the hinge, that adds a lot of, of compliance and that uh, helped uh, you know, accounting for the deformation. But simply what we, we needed something that was kind of easy to do. So what we did, most of the sheet, how we put them together with just with uh, duct tape. That is kind of, you know, it's doing the job for that. To both give the elasticity and to make everything airtight because you need to inflate it, right? I love it. Transparent duct tape was what we, what we used. In the field of polymer science, uh, a lot of people are developing these materials that are, you know, highly stretchable, very, very tough, so resistant to, to a failure. And uh, these for sure could be used for, for real-world application. Yeah. I love that you guys are using different types of materials. I love that duct tape is a part of it. I think that every person I've interviewed, they have used duct tape for something in their science uh, lab, which is great. I think it was, honestly, the, the dome that you saw, probably, so I made a funny video for Thanksgiving, it's kind of saving the world one roll of duct tape at a time. <laughs> and uh, I think we use maybe 40 rolls or something. I don't remember the count, but a lot. Oh my gosh. I mean, if it's for science, it's for a good cause. I've used duct tape for not anything useful. And <laughs> I think your uses are a lot more uh, useful in the long run. So I won't hold it against you. So did you guys love the Origami Inspired Deployable Structures Project? Of course you did. It's awesome. 
which means you're going to love what comes next. Not only has the Bertoldi group used origami as an inspiration for their work, but they also have been inspired by the art form kirigami. What's this? Even more art-inspired science? I know, I didn't think it could get any better either, but boy does it. While most of us have probably heard of origami before, kirigami might not have been something that made it on your radar, although the two art forms are very similar. The word origami comes from the Japanese words ori, meaning folding, and kami, meaning paper. So, no surprise that origami is the art of folding paper. The word kirigami comes from the Japanese words kiru, meaning to cut, and kami, meaning, again, paper. So, you might have already guessed that the big difference between origami and kirigami is that kirigami involves creating cuts in paper to create shapes, rather than relying on folding alone. Although the art form was a revelation to me, kirigami itself is not new. It was actually developed decades, even centuries before the 17th century, and it was originally used as a means to create offerings to the gods. But it wasn't until the 1960s that kirigami came to America, thanks to a book called Kirigami, The Creative Art of Paper Cutting written by author Florence Tempko. Since then, the art form has grown across America and can be seen everywhere. The most popular example of kirigami that you'll see today is in the form of a pop-up greeting card. These are cards where a sheet of colored paper is cut and folded in a precise way, so that when the card is opened, the cuts pop out and form an image, like a teddy bear or flowers. It's very cute, and I definitely want one. Anyone? Want to give me one? No? That's okay. I don't need one. It's fine. But kirigami isn't just popular in the art world. Just like we saw with David's deployable origami structures, the art form kirigami has made its way into the science world as well, and the Bertoldi Lab has created all kinds of amazing structures and designs inspired by kirigami. David gives us a little background on how these wonderful things are actually made. I think most people are familiar with with origami, right? The, the basic concept would be you have a, you know, you have a sheet of paper, you fold it, and then you get, you know, a swan or you get a very intricate shape. Kirigami, very similarly, the, you know, you start with a sheet of paper, but you, in, instead of folding it, right, you introduce cuts in the, in the sheet. So you cut the sheet, and now when you pull on the sheet, when you extend the sheet, you see these very intricate patterns happening, right? So here they go sort of out of plane. So essentially, this is what, what you do with kirigami. You introduce cuts in the material instead of folding it to, to achieve your shapes. And then yeah, you, you can get very interesting behavior out of that. And, and in our lab, we, we certainly take that as an inspiration for, for a lot of different projects. So for the actual process for making the kirigami cuts in the sheets, what do you do? Do you use like scalpel? Do you uh, have some sort of instrument that does it automatically? What do you use? What material is the sheet made of? Right. Uh, so it's pretty, it's pretty simple. So again, in terms of material, uh, we're not limited to just one material. I think the easiest one or for us, the easiest one to use and the most accessible one was just this, uh, these plastic sheets. Um, so it's a, you know, the, the correct name is like a PETG. But it's essentially a plastic sheet that comes in different thicknesses. And for us, that, that's what's important. So sort of these the standardized thicknesses. And to introduce the cuts, it's very simple. So we, we have a laser cutter in our lab. 
which is basically a laser that you can program its paths and then say, well, you know, move X, Y, and then cut along this line to introduce very precisely uh, you know, the origami pattern. So yeah, a laser cutter and then a, a sheet of plastic is all we need. That's it? Just two things? That's awesome. That means I can literally do my own Kirigami science project at home. All you need is, let's see, about $5 for a 10-pack of PETG sheets. And then about, mm, ah, yes, $3,000 for a laser cutter. Okay, well, that's not quite in my budget. I guess I'll just leave this up to the experts, seeing as they already have some wild Kirigami projects up and running. Well, up and crawling, I guess would be more accurate, because the Bertoli lab has managed to create a completely untethered, crawling, snake-inspired Kirigami soft robot, which I like to affectionately call the snake bot. This adorable robot has carefully designed scale-like shapes cut into a Kirigami sheet, which is wrapped around an inflatable balloon, and using only a tiny air pump, the snake bot can crawl across the ground completely on its own. No legs, no wheels, just tiny Kirigami cuts and a can-do attitude. It's absolutely fantastic. You have to watch the video I posted of it. It's not only amazing, but incredibly cute. So how is this snake bot actually made? How does it work? So if you remember, I was you know talking about this flat sheet that when you pull on it, it kind of pops out and then it becomes very stiff in terms of bending rigidity, right? So I think the inspiration was from that. And if you cut the snake, what you will find inside is actually just a... It's an engineered balloon, but it's a very, very simple balloon that is not attached to the Kirigami sheet, uh, where we roll fibers around the balloon to limit its radial expansion. So that means when you inflate that, that very simple balloon with fibers wrapped around, it only inflates in a sort of in the lengthwise direction. And what that does, if you wrap this sort of uh, Kirigami pattern around it, right? What that does, it, it kind of acts as this pulling mechanism for the kirigami sheet, right? Because it only goes lengthwise. So it effectively what it does, it, it pulls this kirigami sheet and then these little scales, they pop out. Just, you know, very similar to the snake. And because they pop out, they can induce friction with the ground, right? To move the snake. So you inflate, pops out, friction, it moves, and then you release, and then you inflate, release, and then that's how the, the snake is able to I love it. That's so cool. Thank you for explaining that because I was sitting there and trying to figure out how on earth this balloon only goes forward rather than out and I could not figure it out. So there's actually fibers on the inside that constricts the expansion. Um, I don't know, laterally, whatever the word is. Radial expansion. Radial expansion. Thank you. Gosh, I sound so smart. So then I saw that this was an untethered robot. So does that mean that all the equipment that it needs to move would actually be on the robot itself. Yeah, yeah, it was inside, right? The sort of the video that you saw, everything is is in the tail of the robot. Okay, all right. So this is something that you can just let loose and it goes off and does its thing until it runs out of battery or power or whatever? Exactly, and I think this is kind of one of the biggest challenge, especially in fluidic soft robots. So usually the pressure supply is external, and then you have the sort of power, the supply line that is feathering the robot. 
to the to the pressure supply. So this is a big challenge that people are trying to tackle. Uh, and this is one example. So embedding the pump, the little pump inside of the actuator itself. I love it. I'm so excited that you guys have created these untethered soft robotics. It's just, to me, this is the future where you have things crawling along uh, across the city to do whatever it needs to do. I love it. I guess what I was curious about is how fast can this thing go? Is that dependent on the Kirigami sheets or is that dependent on the air actuated balloon inside? So both. So I think it's it's quite dependent on the flow rate of the pump, right? But the Kirigami sheet is also a factor in increasing the, the displacement that you get. So this is important. So the Kirigami pattern is changing the displacement that you get at every cycle. So ideally, you want a large displacement for one cycle, right? But that is not very related to speed. What is related to speed is how fast can you do one cycle. So that's the pump. So the pump is how fast can you do one cycle? The Kirigami is how effective is one cycle. So of course, you need a good combination of both. What they showed in the paper is very slow, to be honest, right? I calculated it's about one centimeter per second. So yeah, very slow. Gotcha. So it's basically how fast the pump moves is how fast, say, if you're comparing this to somebody walking, would be how fast your leg moves, whereas the Kirigami sheets is dependent on how wide your stride is almost. So both of them are kind of important depending on how fast you want to get to the final destination. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's a good analogy, actually. Yeah. What can I say, David? I may not ever be able to design a Kirigami soft robot, but I sure can explain how it works. Kind of. But how awesome is this snakebot, guys? Not only has the group been able to design a robot that's inspired by an ancient form of Japanese art, but it's also inspired by the movements of real snakes themselves. But even though it's named after snakes, you won't be confusing the two in the wild anytime soon. So, um... Snakebot. I love this. I saw this online and I thought it was the cutest thing ever. So how large is this? I know that you say that these can be scale independent. When you created it, was it like a little tiny little thing or was it? I think it's about, I think it was, the length was about 30 centimeters long. About So not, you know. So not an anaconda in the jungle or anything like that. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I'm curious, have you guys ever done snakebot races to see who can come up with like the best design and whoever wins gets to keep, I don't know, something exciting? Uh, no, no, no races, but they did compare, you know, different patterns. And it's kind of, the video is kind of a race, right? So you have like the different patterns. It, it kind of looks like a race, but it's different video. So it was not, you know, never at the same time. That would have been gotcha. fun. You gotta have fun with your science, especially when you work on such fun projects. If I was in the Bertoldi lab, I don't think I would ever be able to get any real work done. I just spend all my time playing with the robots. Especially this next robot, which I like to call the starfish robot. Why? Because it basically looks just like a starfish, but with four legs instead of five, and a whole mess of tubes connected to the center of the body. Now this little guy is wild. Just like all the other robots we've talked about so far, the starfish robot is powered by air. So when air is pumped through the tubes into the robot, the arms will inflate and bend, dragging and pushing the robot forward. Seriously, it looks like the robot is arm wave dancing itself across the floor. It's amazing. 
But how? How does it work? Help me, David. So I was hoping that you could just give a quick overview of like what the components of this are. I know that there is some tubes and then there's some arms and then that's about all I got. Right. So I do have like the basic building block with me. So it's very famous in the field of, of soft robotic, this bending actuator. So how does that work is, is basically you have two layers in here. So the green layer is basically very stiff and inextensible layer right? So this is a solid sort of rubber uh, material and, and quite stiff. And sort of this transparent layer here, um, you can see that you have multiple chambers. So the cavities here that can be inflated and this much softer this side. So basically what is happening is when you inflate this, right? So from the flat position, you see that these little chamber, they sort of inflate and you see this bending motion, right? So this is an extensible and this is very, very soft and extends a lot because of the chambers. So this is kind of the, the building block of the, of the robot, right? So that would be one leg. Okay, this blew my mind when he told me about it. So I looked up some videos to see what a bending actuator looks like just by itself. And I won't lie, it's making me feel some kind of way. Watching the flexible rubber chambers expand and then curl the arm forward, I'm both intrigued and disgusted. Is that just me? Check out the video I posted and let me know what you think. So the bending actuator itself isn't new. It's been used in a lot of soft robotic projects. But what's so fascinating about this crawler starfish robot is that despite having four legs that are all inflated at separate times, there's only one air supply to the whole device. What? How does that work? So this is the same idea of simplifying the input to have a complex output. So if you think of like the, the starfish, as you called it, with four legs, if you have four pressure supplies, it's very easy to do this, right? Because you say, well, the, you know, controller, you say, okay, well, this pressure supply goes first, this one second, third, and fourth, and so on. Now, can you do the same thing with only one pressure supply? That was kind of the, the goal of the project. It turns out you can if you harness uh, the viscosity in the fluid. So this was going back to my point of soft robotics. You can go fast if you inflate very, very fast. But if you inflate very, very fast, you cannot assume anymore that everything, all your closed system is at the same pressure, right? You have dynamic effects, right? It's kind of all the, molecule, the, the molecules of air, they're kind of trying to get through that narrow tube, but there's traffic jam, right? It, it's kind of, they cannot go at the same pace because you're inflating very, very fast. And it turns out that you can, you know, play with this viscosity. You can sort of tune it again with geometry. And the geometry is, you know, the length of the tube and also the diameter of the tube. And what was developed in this, in this project is kind of, again, this inverse design, right? This algorithm to say, well, my objective, if I have like four of these guys in a row, my objective is this one, uh, you know, at time 0.25 second, it's there. And the other one, it will reach the same target at 0.5 second. So that was kind of the idea of temporally and also in terms of coordinate, these bending actuator, if I inflate with this uh, single pressure supply, this is the sequence that I get. That's 
fantastic because I know in soft robotics, as you were saying, that if you want these complex movements, you have to have complex equipment and designs. But having just a single input of air and being able to move these four different limbs in different times in different ways is amazing. I love it. So when you have this viscosity of air, as you were saying, it's difficult for the same amount of air to get through, say, a smaller tube than a larger tube. You also talked about the length of the tube. So I'm assuming that it would be easier for the same amount of air to get through a smaller tube rather than a longer tube. So you use these different components of length and width to be able to control how long it takes to get to one of the arms. And then when you, you know, time that out correctly, you get the movement of each of the arms and allows it to move across the, the floor. Exactly. Exactly. That's so cool. I I watched the uh, video online of it and it like honestly it terrified me. I'm curious if you've ever tried to use these to prank your friends like middle of the night have something crawling at them. Um I would definitely do it, but maybe I'm just an evil person, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's very slow though. <laughs> so. so it's not as terrifying as when it's so slow. Okay. All right. Mm, I don't know. Even if it's not able to move fast, I still feel like if I woke up and saw this thing slowly crawling up my body, I'd fall out of bed screaming. David, can I borrow that robot for a hot minute? I have a hypothesis to test. Wow. Guys, can we just marvel for a minute about all the amazing projects we've talked about today? We learned about soft jumpers, origami deployable structures, kirigami snake bots, and a starfish crawler robot. I got so caught up in all of this boss science, I forgot that not everybody wants to listen to a six-hour-long podcast episode. That's okay. I know that even though I have the pipes of an angel, you've probably had enough of me for today. So how about we call it a wrap on this episode? That sound good? But wait, Grace, what about our listener questions? What about your amazing interview with the head of the Bertoldi Lab, Professor Katya Bertoldi herself? Don't worry, I didn't forget. I will cover all of that and more on the next episode. For real though, there is so much amazing stuff that I haven't gotten to yet, like learning about how the amazing robots and structures you heard about today can be used for real world applications, or how soft robots can respond and adapt to changes in light or temperature. And there might just be talk about a combustion powered robot. Ooh. What could that be about? I don't know. Looks like you'll have to wait for the next episode to find out. But you don't have to wait to check out all the amazing science you heard about in today's episode. All you have to do is log on to Instagram or Facebook and check out the podcast at BOS Science to see videos and pictures of all of the structures and robots talked about on the show. Make sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts so you don't miss the exciting next chapter of the show. And if you have 30 seconds to waste, please give the show a quick rating and review on iTunes. I will love you instantly and also forever. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to give a huge thank you to today's guest, David Melisson, for talking about so many amazing projects and for also letting me bombard him with questions for the better part of two hours. I won't lie, I got a little carried away during the interview. I was fascinated, to say the least. If you guys love David, well, you're in luck, 
because he'll be back in the next episode to answer all of your listener questions. And I hope you're as excited as I am, because you had some awesome questions. Thank you guys for sticking it out and tuning in. I hope you enjoyed. And as always, I'll see you on the next episode, where I talk to some wicked smart people and learn about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.